Welcome to Follow the Data. I'm your host, Katherine Oliver. As COVID-19 spreads rapidly in cities around the world, the virus poses an urgent challenge to mayors and city health officials worldwide. And as we've learned in the past few months, COVID-19 is especially dangerous for those who suffer from non-communicable diseases like heart conditions and asthma. That's why the Partnership for Healthy Cities, which was created by Bloomberg Philanthropies to tackle non-communicable diseases and injuries in 70 cities, is jumping in to provide immediate assistance for cities to respond to the virus. One of the initiatives the partnership launched is a series of virtual convenings, giving local leaders guidance on how to implement public health interventions while minimizing social and economic impacts. These convenings, although virtual, also serve as a venue to exchange COVID-19 experiences and strategies among mayors. The Partnership for Healthy Cities is supported by Bloomberg Philanthropies in partnership with the World Health Organization and Vital Strategies. To tell us more about this initiative, Mayor Yvonne Aki-Sawyer of Freetown, Sierra Leone, spoke with Dr. Kelly Henning, who heads the public health program at Bloomberg Philanthropies. They discuss how Freetown is responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, how global mayors are sharing information during the corona crisis, and what's keeping mayors hopeful right now. Mayor Aki Sawyer, thank you so much for being with us today. We're really pleased to have you with us, and we have so many questions and so much interest in the work that you're doing. Uh, It's been about two months now since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. And I know that you've been doing a lot of work in Freetown. Could you talk about what the reaction from city government and your national government has been like so far? In terms of the response of us as Sierra Leoneans, having had the experience of an Ebola outbreak, the thought that we would be joining the rest of the world, I think there's a real sort of sense of no, not again. As a mayor who had been at the front line of the Ebola response, we've got to put into practice the lessons we learned from the last outbreak, correct the things that we got wrong so that we don't have to lose time. And the national response for the national government is one where, as you'd expect, is dealing with more of the clinical side of things, so, you know, the, the access to testing and decisions around major interventions like lockdowns or inter-district travel. The city's plan seeks to complement what national government is doing, but really to speak to the precarities of Freetown, being the capital city, being a dense urban setting with a lot of informality, which challenges some of the immediate preventative measures that WHO put out. Mayor, thank you for setting it up for us so well. Are there pillars of response that you've been involved with that seem to be particularly effective at this stage? I mentioned the informality of Freetown and its density. We've got 8,450 people per square kilometer and 35% of our residents live in informal settlements. You know, what some people would refer to as slum communities. They are very, very dense. We also have a situation where we've got 
47% of our residents without access to running water. And another feature which is really relevant is that the informality moves beyond just our housing, but it moves also into employment and into transport. So you've got a lot of single occupancy um, transport, which are known as Okadas, and they're motorcycles. And so if you're using an Okada, the concept of social distancing between you and the vehicle driver is non-existent. We have a high percentage of our population who are market traders, you know, who are traders, whether they're in a formal market, an open market, or a street market. And those markets generally tend to not have been designed with social distancing in mind. So the Freetown City Council COVID-19 Preparedness and Response Plan has three strategic elements. And the first one is behavior change messaging. The second is behavior change support. And the third is isolation and containment support. So with the messaging, it's really, I'm sure you're aware, we're seeing it everywhere in the world, that there is a fair bit of misinformation and fake news around COVID. And at some point, there was this message, um, this narrative that COVID couldn't survive in the heat. So it wasn't going to be in Sierra Leone. You've also heard the 5G messages that that fake news has made its way globally. But there's also the difference. When we had the first confirmed cases of Ebola here in Sierra Leone in 2014, it took months for there to be an acceptance of the disease. There was a lot of the denial. And then with acceptance, you know, and the realization, the seeing the cases, seeing the deaths, that experience is very real for people here. Now, having said that, the difference between Ebola and Corona then creates a complication because where people are now accustomed to a virus, which like Corona is unseen, it's deadly, but this concept of having asymptomatic positives is different. We also have with the messaging, the need to remind people that this is still real, even if you're not seeing people vomiting blood and you know visibly ill, they could still be positive. So that messaging for us is part of the lessons learned from Ebola, that there has to be community ownership. And for that ownership to happen, you've not only got to make sure the message is clear, but also the messenger is credible. So our plan has community outreach teams from within communities. It has special interest groups working with us, including the Ebola Survivors Association, who have you know, very, very real experiences they can share, but also groups like the Traders Council and persons with disability and interreligious organizations as well. So multiple multimedia engagements, well as face-to-face personal engagement and very much bottom up within communities with the involvement of youth leaders, tribal heads, women leaders within wards of our city. The second element of the plan is behavior change support. So having said to you, this is what the disease is. You need to wash your hands regularly. You need to wear a mask. You need to socially distance. The question then becomes, how do I do that? Given all of the factors that I described affecting Freetown, and that involves providing water. So it's really giving us an opportunity to accelerate some of the interventions that we've been planning 
It's, it's pushed us to do so much more faster. And it's hand wash stations. So, you know, sort of 200 liter buckets placed in our three key target areas, which are the markets in the informal sectors themselves, but also in our peripheral health units, which are our community clinics. And so we're making sure they have water. In the informal settlements, we're putting in right now 68 rainwater harvesting systems. And we're also now working on being able to work with springs within communities so that we can collect more water um, and have it, you know, um, to enable people to, to do the most basic of the preventative measures, which is to wash their hands regularly. So already we have distributed hundreds of buckets and hand wash stations. Social distancing, it's really hard. You can't socially distance in a community where the houses are a foot apart from each other and you have six, seven people living in, you know, what would be three meters by four meters. So with that sort of setting, we really want to emphasize the wearing of masks and the washing of hands, but also the avoidance of touch. And where we can do social distancing, we are. The other elements of the behavior change support is providing urban farming. So to build resilience in our urban slum communities, our informal settlements, we are introducing planting of vegetables and other fast-growing foods so that people are more resilient during lockdowns. We're also working to upgrade four of our community health clinics into maternity facilities so that people who are now reluctant to go to the main hospitals to have babies can do so in community. And finally, on isolation and containment support, we're providing food to people in quarantine homes in slum communities. And that's a support to what the government is doing to encourage people to be able to stay um, and not feel the need to move out. And we're also working on some contingency plan for an additional isolation facilities should they be required. You're describing this situation on the ground so well and so beautifully, and it's really coming home, I think, as we listen to you describe. Do you have a plan or is there part of your social and physical distancing plan to somehow take into account your persons over 65, your, your most vulnerable? Where we are in terms of numbers of cases, we now have nationally just under 421 deaths. And I think we are still struggling with having people sort of gear up and gear into action. And actually, Kelly, I, I'm not even certain that in our context, the most vulnerable are going to necessarily be just the elderly because we, we, you know, we understand the higher risk of people with pre-existing conditions. And in a country where our life expectancy is 52 years, we actually have a lot of young people who are living with conditions. We have 50 doctors to 100,000 people, and it's 300 nurses to 100,000 people. So many people have never visited a doctor in their lives. I've been privileged to have grown up in a, I suppose what, what you would call in the West, a middle-class family, but in recent years, as I've engaged more and more broadly with the people who are my residents, I've realized that many people have not had that opportunity. They go to pharmacists. They see nurses in community. So I guess I'm just wanting to 
push back a little on the description of who is vulnerable and not to say that those over 60 aren't, but just to describe a situation where vulnerability really runs across and through our society. In just this week alone, a good friend of mine has lost his wife to childbirth. They have a very high maternal mortality rate. A young couple, another friend, he had a heart attack. They got married three weeks ago. My uncle died last week, Thursday. So this is a bit different. And I think it's going to be interesting to see the numbers and to see the demographics when it comes to the COVID deaths. Mayor, your points are so well taken. I mean, it's really important to think about the context and you're describing a a particular situation in Freetown and Sierra Leone that we don't necessarily see in the United States or in some of the other uh, Western countries. I guess I wanted to just veer off if I could for a moment and ask you a little bit about partnership and peer-to-peer exchange. Are there other mayors in Sierra Leone that you're in touch with or in West Africa? And are they facing quite similar situations on the ground that you're describing? Yes. So we, we have a local um, council association and we share, we're sharing on that forum what we're doing um, and, and discussing that. In the sub-regional West African context, it's also informal as it is actually in Sierra Leone. But I am in touch with the mayor of Accra in particular. I think I'm more in touch with mayors through the mayor's networks that I'm a part of. So through the Bloomberg family, but also through C40s in particular, I think sort of the C40 grouping have these webinars, the UCLG do global parliament of mayors. So there's definitely a sort of a body, a family of mayors where we have the opportunity to share ideas. I'm on an iMessage group with a number of US mayors. So it's real time sharing. So I think it's it's not just within Sierra Leone or in the sub-region. It's, it's really just mayors who are connected, all sharing information. The fact that this pandemic is so phenomenally challenging globally. So every part of the world being affected, as you said in the opening, and wondering what keeps you going, what makes you feel hopeful and helps you get through your day. Hmm. We've got to win. I ran for office because of a real desperate desire to see sanitation and the environment improved in my city. And we embarked on a very ambitious program called Hashtag Transform Freetown. We're desperate to get back on track. We're desperate to improve the lives of people. The economies around the world are taking a battering. Nobody quite knows what this is going to mean. But there is an opportunity, which we're already seeing, for us to build back better. COVID has meant that rainwater harvesting, which is something we've talked about, now we are doing because we have to. We need to make sure people have water today. We're continuing with other projects. You know, we split the team in my office. So some guys, some folk are working on Transform Freetown. Others are fully immersed in the response. What gives me hope is is knowing that every night ends with the dawn. It can't go on forever. Nothing does. It's going to be tough. It's already tough. Difficult decisions are being made. We're watching 
as countries are easing restrictions to see how that goes. Here, the restrictions in place are not at the level of anything that's, you know, at least at the level of some of the, the things we've seen. I've got family in the, in the UK and they've been home for two months plus now. We have a curfew. Everybody has to be in by nine and you can't go out until six. There have been two three-day lockdowns. Um, but because of the levels of poverty and the fact that many people need to work today to eat today, the idea of a two-month, one-month, even 14-day lockdown is something that's hard for governments to, to sort of get their heads around. And we don't know. Maybe there will be a decision to do that. But there's, we're also watching how the, the numbers are growing and the, and the spread, the pace of transmission, the rate of transmission, rather. We keep going, as I'm sure mayors all around the world, but not just mayors, everyone. We keep going because... We know it it has to get better, but each of us has a role to play to make that happen. And on that note, I just want to say a huge thank you because we wouldn't be doing this as a city without the help of many, many partners. And from Bloomberg, just give a shout out to, to Bloomberg, from Bloomberg to World Bank, EU, DFID, you know, NGOs like Goal Concern, CRS, UN Habitat, UNCDF, we've been amazed by the level of support that has moved towards us as we've shared our plan. And the residents of Freetown have been phenomenal. I'm blown away by how ordinary people, just the humanity that comes alive at times like this. So yeah, that's what keeps us going. Mayor Yvonne Aki-Sawyer, thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing all of the important work that's going on in Freetown. Thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Follow the Data. Many thanks to Dr. Kelly Henning and Mayor Yvonne Aki-Sawyer for joining us. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Follow the Data podcast and tell your friends to subscribe as well. This episode was created by Devin Alessio, Ivy Lee, Amy Curland, Sarah Washington, Eric Levin, Cindy Nunclaris, and Lauren Nolan. As our founder, Mike Bloomberg, says, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So until next time, keep following the data. I'm Catherine Oliver. Thanks for listening. <laughs>